It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a good one in store today coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk about film noir. That's I, I, I love that genre, and it's uh, thought of as distinctly American, but... Uh, a new uh, book written by Andrew Dikos is, um, oh, takes it back a little further than that. It's called Street With No Name, A History of the Classic American Film Noir. And uh, in the middle, in the second hour of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with a uh, uh, historian and uh, author who's written a book called uh, Autonorama, The Illusory Promise of High-Tech Driving by Peter Norton. He'll join me by phone. But first, we're going to talk with the author of a new book called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. And uh, it might be a little different than what you're expecting. It's written by uh, William Shutt, and uh, he's the author of Cannibalism. (laughs) He joins me by phone. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I got to ask you about this. After writing the book Cannibalism, cannibalism, um, was 
did you decide to write about the heart because it's a delicacy? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I, yeah, my first. My, my first nonfiction book was uh, was called Dark Banquet, Blood and the Curious Lives of Blood-Feeding Creatures. And, and I, I, as, a, as a scientist, I'd studied vampire bats for 20 years. So when I got a chance to write a, a, a popular science book, it, it sort of made sense to write something about what I knew. So the first half of that book was about my, my, my work in the field with my wife and my kids. Um, but in my second book, it, you know, I've always been into the macabre. That's why I lit up sort of sitting here on the east end of Long Island when you mentioned film noir because uh, I'm a big fan. And Alfred Hitchcock is my, uh, I don't know if he'd be considered noir. I have, he's my favorite I, well, director. He absolutely is, in my opinion, at least sure. certainly some of his films. And um, tomorrow on the show, I have uh, authors back-to-back who've written about Hitchcock. And, uh, and I just watched Preminger. Psycho last night for about the 20th time. <laughs> I just think it's a perfect film. Well, in any in any event, so uh, so I wrote a, a book about cannibalism. I, I'm a zoologist, and I, I and the it was called Cannibalism: A, a Perfectly Natural History. And and so I, I moved through the animal kingdom, showing how this was. Uh, now, this is something that was quite common for reasons that had nothing to do with uh, a lack of food or or cramped captive conditions. And 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 um, I I like to. To tell an, an entertaining story, you know, this is certainly none of these books are textbooks. I, I sort of cut out the jargon, and I try to get some big messages across with regard to you know, bi- biology, evolution, medicine, things like that, that might be, you know, confusing or, or complex. I try to take those apart, which, which is what I've been doing as a teacher for 22 years um, before I took an early retirement. So I had this list of things that I wanted to write about, and and none of it had anything to do with the heart. And, and my agent, Jillian McKenzie, and my editor at Algonquin suggested that I look for something a bit more mainstream, and, and they gave me a list, and on that <laughs> list was, was the heart. So I started to look at research a little bit into this because I thought right off the bat, ah, this is... This has been done. So many people are experts, and they've written so many books about the heart. What is there in there for me to, to, to work on? And I was just blown away. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with the fact that the, the animals that I found that I, that I thought had interesting circulatory systems and hearts, a lot of them are now being looked at by medical researchers for things like, um, for, you know, for improving cardiac medicine. You know, I'd like to have a dollar for sort of every time I've been asked, you know, you, you worked on vampire bats for 20 years. How does that help my grandmother live longer? And, you know, that's a, that's a real question. And, and so when I started to write this book, I realized that there's so much in the animal kingdom that was tying into um, to, to, to modern medicine and to medicine of the future. So, uh, and then when you get into the history of cardiac medicine and, and all of the mistakes that were made for 1,500 years or more, it it just turned into something that that was really intriguing to me. Well, and I didn't mention um, when I introduced you, Bill, um, you brought it up that you're a zoologist and recently retired as professor of biology at Long Island University, but you didn't mention you're a research associate (laughs) at the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I've been there for, uh, I, I was started out there as a graduate student, um, then a postdoctoral fellow, and, and I've been a research associate there for, for a long time. And, and, and I've actually been sharing an office with, uh, with, a, with Patricia J. Wynn, who's been the artist on, in, in every one of my scientific papers when I, when I was an active researcher, and then a couple of book chapters, the three novels that I wrote, and then all three of the nonfictions. She's 
you know, an award-winning illustrator and has been work, she's worked on 250 books. So I've just been really lucky with regard to, to who I've gotten to work with from my mentors at the museum and uh, to uh, on down to, you know, not on down, but um, to the people that I work with in, um, in, 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 the, in the publishing industry. I've just been really lucky. Well, you know, we're always fascinated when we talk to someone, you know, like you, Bill, a, a zoologist, about different kinds of species here on the planet and, and their various strengths and weaknesses. But in, in this book, um, you're talking specifically about the heart, which would you consider that sort of universal to all life on Earth or not really? Um, well, it, it, that's a really interesting question, and I go into that because um, it, it, it's the heart and the circulatory system. And, and really what you're looking at is, that, first of all, they vary uh, across the animal kingdom. But what you're looking at is sort of a muscular pump that, that sends a liquid, usually blood, throughout the body to carry oxygen, carbon dioxide, waste material that's produced by cells, and, and carrying nutrients to these cells. And if you were to ask a cardiac surgeon, you know, if you were to show him pictures of, uh, you know, of, of the aortic arches of an earthworm and say, these are, these are hearts, you know, that, no, those aren't really card-carrying hearts in his book. Uh, but to me, they, they all get the job done. And when you look across the animal kingdom, the animals without backbones, the invertebrates, there's all sorts of different ways to, to do this, to get this job done, to pump this liquid around the body. And, and that's because we think that it evolved many times in the invertebrate animals. If you look at the vertebrates, the backbone creatures, from fish to amphibians to reptiles, birds and mammals, there's a lot of similarity. Even, you know, if you go to compare uh, the, the, the heart of a, of a zebrafish that you might have in your aquarium to a human heart, they're really closely related. And, and we think that this is because th that all of these vertebrate circulatory systems and hearts evolved from a common ancestor. But that allows us to now use those animals, those, those vertebrates that you don't, you know, you don't think a, a zebrafish is going to do much good to, to help out uh, human health. That, that allows researchers to go in there and actually you know, uh, learn about what's different about these creatures that can enable them to improve our health. And, I'm, and that to me was, you know, that was so cool. What are the, um, oh, how do, we, how do we refer to life on this planet? In, in, is it um, corporeal? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. Well, I, I'm. I guess. I guess I'll just cut to the chase, Bill. How similar are the various types? Even the, even though some walk on four legs, some walk on two mm -hmm. legs, some fly, some burrow. Um, you know, some get stuck in traffic jams. Um, how similar is the organizational structure of yeah. the internal mechanisms that make life life? Great question. 
Um, so if you're talking about the animals with backbones, that, you know, if you're talking about insects or, or, uh, or, or worms or, or horseshoe crabs, what, what we find are similarities but, but, but major differences as well. When you look at animals that have a backbone, you know, the, the, the zebrafish that I mentioned, they're 75% genetically identical to humans, which allows, you know, all sorts of research into how their bodies work and, and how, they may, how, they, how we may derive benefits from these guys. But there's a lot of similarity. That's, uh, that's the, the short answer to that question. A lot of similarity across the animal kingdom. And, and what about the circulatory system, the, the heart, which is what your book, Pump, is all about? Mm-hmm. Uh, similarities. I mean, if you look at, yeah, okay, so, so we've established that. But there are also some differences as well. You know, I go into the fact that, uh, that my friends up at the Royal Ontario Museum were able to, for the first time, look at a blue whale heart. Now, this is the largest heart on the planet, the largest heart of, of, of any creature that, that, that ever lived. Um, but when they, got, when they got a hold of it, which was a fluke, because usually blue whales sink. So they'd been getting questions like, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the largest heart in the world? Blue whale heart. How big? Uh, it's the uh, size of a sedan. But they really didn't know. And just by accident, some of these creatures died. They washed up. They, they got stuck in an ice flow in Newfoundland in 2014. And, and my friends were able to go up and, and recover the heart from, from one of these whales that, that came ashore on this tiny little fishing village in Newfoundland. Just 90 tons of you know, bloated, gigantic, dead thing floats into this little town and, and lands right underneath the only restaurant in town. So these guys go up there with construction equipment. They're able to pull the heart out. And it didn't look anything like what a typical mammalian heart looks like. You know, so I described it in the book as a 400-pound soup dumpling. And it just collapsed. So that's a mam- mammal heart. They're not expecting it to look very different than a, than a human heart or a cow heart or, or, or you know, a, a hamster heart, for that matter. But it looked very different. And, and, and so being able to figure out why, and, and they think that this is because that, that those whales dive extremely deeply. And when they do, their heart rate slows down to two or three times per minute. And instead of beating, having to constantly beat, like if it was something like a hummingbird, where you're beating, you know, a hundred, your hummingbird heart beats 1,260 beats per minute. These hearts are beating two or three times per minute. And instead of having to withstand that tremendous pressure when they dive, the heart just collapses. So that's an adaptation to these deep dives. And the heart was a lot smaller than they thought it was going to be. You know, if this was, the way I describe it, if this was a 90-ton hummingbird laying there next to that whale, its heart would have been eight times larger because of the active life that it has, the fact that it's beating its wings 80 times per second. And you've got to supply those wing muscles with oxygen and nutrients. Hey, Bill, I hate to interrupt, but I have a uh, short break. I have to go to break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? All right. My uh, guest is Bill Schutt, the um, author of Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint, uh, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. Uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More with uh, zoologist and author Bill Schutt is coming up straight ahead.
And now I dare everybody, it's me, Tigger, T-I-Double-G-R, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is uh, a zoologist and researcher and author of a new book called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart by Bill Shutt. And uh, he joins me by phone. Bill, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, no problem at all. Um, Bill, you know, when you, when you say a natural history of the heart, it begs the question, which came first? The chicken or the heart? <laughs> um, I, that's an easy one. If you're really, really tiny, which we think the first types of life on Earth were, then you don't need a heart because the, the, the nutrients that you need just sort of diffuse in from the outside environment. The oxygen that you need does the same. The carbon dioxide that might build up in a cell like that diffuses out. You're just going from high concentration to low across a very thin membrane. So if you're very flat or very small, you don't need a heart, you don't need a circulatory system. But that diffusion, that movement from high concentration to low doesn't work very well when, you have, when you're made up of millions and millions of cells. So in order to, 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 have, in order to evolve creatures, organisms of any type of size, you needed a, a transport mechanism, and that's what the heart and the circulatory system do. Is there... A, a definable moment in time when the heart made an appearance in evolution? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good question. We, we think somewhere around 400 million years ago, 450 million years ago, um, maybe a bit, uh, a bit older than that. It, it's tough to see these things in the fossil record. You sort of presume when you see something that's a fairly co- complex fossil that it, that it had a circulatory system, but it's difficult to sort of pinpoint, uh, and, it's diff- and, and it's tough to fossilize, to see those things fossilized because they're delicate. They're made out of soft tissue. So you get to see the bony parts that, that preserve, but you don't get to see the internal workings. But we, we sort of presume it happened, I don't know, half a billion years ago. You mentioned in the last segment that, that you've studied... Uh, uh, vampire bats extensively, and yep. you were challenged with the question, well, what does studying vampire bats do to help my grandmother live longer? But what does studying the heart in all these different animals do to make uh, your friend's grandma live longer? Oh, um, that's, that's an easy one, because that, you know, as I said, as I, as I went through the animal kingdom, I, was looking, I wasn't writing an encyclopedia. I was looking for intriguing stories about creatures and, and, and how their hearts and, and circulatory systems were, were, were different. And so when you run across something like a... Um, so I'll give you an, another example. Um, so there's a real big problem in the Florida Ever, Everglades with, with Burmese pythons. And these are invasive species that were released as pets, and now there's no predators and they grow to tremendous size, and they eat everything. Um, and, and estimates are that there could be a million of them in the Everglades. So uh, a researcher that, that, I, that I met by the name of Leslie Leanwind out of the University of Colorado 
studied Burmese pythons, and what she found out was that when they eat a big meal, and we've all seen pictures of sort of like boas, boa constrictors or pythons, and they're eating this whatever rodent hole, that when they have this meal, their heart grows in size by 40%. And so when we think of an enlarged heart, we think this is a negative thing. That's sort of a pathological condition. You don't, you don't want an enlarged heart. But there are other types of heart growth, like an athlete's heart that grows through, from exercise, that, where, where that's a healthy thing. And what she found was that when these animals consume a meal, their heart grows in a healthy manner by 40%. And so they, she, she's been looking at the components of the blood of these creatures after a meal to figure out and, and to apply this to, to, to humans and, and problems that you might have. If you have a heart attack, let's say, um, they're going to put you on an exercise regimen to, to strengthen your heart. Some people are not going to be able to go on that exercise regimen because their hearts are, are too damaged. Is there a way to... to to use the substances that are found in the, in the python blood to cause healthy growth in the hearts of people who can't undertake normal exercise uh, because their hearts are in tough condition. So these are the types of things that I ran into time and time again, these connections between the, the animal kingdom and, and what we're looking to do to, to improve um, cardiac medicine. What about transplantation um mm -hmm. you know we hear about valves from pig hearts being used in certain kinds of human uh, heart repair um are, are we at a point where we can or have uh, transplanted a um, a pig heart into a human are, are they that similar well if we back up to say a week ago, in the news there was this big story that 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 pig kidney was was being used and transplanted to a human body and was working. And the thing about this is, if you were to take a, a normal pig kidney and transplant it into a person, your your body would reject it. There are there are substances and 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 and, and sort of uh, compounds that are found that that make up that that organ that your body is going to detect as as a foreign invader and attack it. So you have this rejection response. But what they've done is they have used this technology called CRISPR technology, where you could literally go in and edit the the genes of this animal to produce a, a strain of pigs that 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 don't have the substances, that don't produce the substances that your body will react to. And so that's just what they did with these kidneys. So they're doing that now. And, you know, these are called xenotransplants. And, um, and they've been around. You know, the most famous one is the one that probably left the biggest impression on me of any story in this entire book, and that was the story of Baby Fay. You know, in 1984, uh, a physician by the name of Leonard Bailey transplanted the heart of a, a baby baboon into a desperately ill newborn uh, and baby Fay. Now, this got worldwide media attention at the time. And the reason that he did that was because there were no infant heart donors. There were, so, so, so baby Fay almost died the night before the, the surgery. So they were, in a sense, they, they, they knew that they, could, that they wanted to try this, and they finally got a chance to do it when they got Baby Faye's mom to, to agree to it. So, so Baby Faye lived for, for 20 days, and she died, and it didn't have anything to do with rejecting that, that, the, the heart. It, it wasn't that. It, it was for other reasons. 
But in but any event, this was tragic because the baby died. But it also opened up, and 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 because of the media coverage, Bailey never had to do another baboon to human heart transplant again because donor hearts started to come in, and so he did over two hundred infant donor uh, infant heart transplants uh, successfully over his career, while while other physicians looked at that that at at the problems that the baby had and said, well, we're going to try to fix this without doing the heart transplant. And so I detail in the book how this, they've got this incredible surgery where they reroute the heart uh, so that, that what's taking place on the left side now takes place on the right side because the left side was defective. It didn't work. And, and so all these amazing things came out of this tragedy that, that occurred in 1984. Um, so yeah, there's there's just so many interesting things as far as uh, you know medical advances and and certainly xenotransplants, transplanting from from one species to another, uh, are part of that story. Well, as you were researching in in putting material together for this book, Bill, um, in studying the heart. Did you come across, or, or, and this is a little frivolous and a little bit off topic, but did you come across when and, and how the heart became a symbol for love and Valentine's Day? And Absolutely. The shape you know, for candy boxes? Oh, sure. <laughs> so, so when I wrote a book about cannibalism, right, I was interested in trying, in trying to figure out why you have this knee-jerk reaction every time that you hear that word. You know, when I say cannibal, you, you think this thing. And, and so I, I wanted, and so, so I could have named, I was going to name that chapter Blame It on the Greeks, you know, the ancient Greeks. And, and when I wrote this book on the heart, I was interested in figuring out where this idea of cardiocentrism came from, where the idea that the heart is the seat of emotion and, 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 and intellect and, and memory, um, where did that come from? And that chapter could have been called Blame It on the Ancient Egyptians because it was, those were the guys you know, 1500 years BCE that, 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 that studied the heart. Now, unfortunately, they got a lot wrong, but they, they saw the heart as, as sort of central, centralized in the body, that it, it, that it moved, that it responded to stimuli. If you, you know, if you scared someone, their heart beat, you know, would beat faster. And so they thought that, that the heart was the, was the seat of all of these things that we now think are, a lot of it tied into the brain. You know, we're now craniocentric. We think that memory and, and, and emotion is, 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 you know, can, can be found in the, in, in the brain uh, and, and, and not the heart. So that's where that came from, and it was passed on to the ancient Greeks, that idea, um, because medical, the, the Egyptian medical information was held in really high esteem by the Greeks and then passed on to the Romans. But meanwhile, the, the artists, the poets, the writers jumped in and, and, and they heard the word that the heart was the, the center of, of, of everything as far as medical, uh, you know, as far as the workings of the body was concerned. So that's where the, all of this came from, you know, the, 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 the emotion and memory and, and intellect and the, and the soul. The idea and, and, of uh, a broken heart. Oh, yeah, all of that. But, so uh, originally from the Egyptians, passed on to the Greeks, and then passed on to the Romans, and then spreading to the West. That's, that's where it came from, and um, mostly from artists that, that, that picked up on this idea from, uh, um, from, from philosophers and, and from, from, from historians and researchers. 
with all we know about hearts in humans and other species on the planet, what don't we know? Hmm. Great question. Uh, the the one that really that that gets me, and first of all, there's quite a bit that we don't know. But but here's one that that, that I think you know, this is the this is the sort of uh, Nobel Prize waiting to be won. If you have a, a uh, so so the human heart right is supplied by these coronary arteries. So these are vessels that supply the heart with oxygen and nutrients, and 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 the coronary veins take away um, uh, carbon dioxide and waste products. So it's like a little circulatory system that supplies the heart. Okay. Now, if those vessels get clogged, which they do, so we're talking about like atherosclerosis here, or a uh, or a blood clot. This is a massive problem, and and you know this is a this is a huge killer. The problem is is if there's a blood clot, let's say, or a seized up artery or a blocked artery, then the tissue, the cells that are downstream of that blockage don't get supplied with blood. So they get starved for oxygen. They get starved for nutrients. And if, if, if that blockage takes, is around for a while, then those cells die. Okay? So now even if you restore the flow, the blood flow, so you get rid of the blockage, you restore the blood flow, uh, you put in a stent. In any event, the, the cells that, are, that have died, when they come back, when they grow back, you could think of them as sort of scar tissue. They're not functioning cardiac muscle cells that contract and, and, and sort of are components of this beautifully evolved heart. So, so that's a huge problem. Now, looking, so you, you asked me before, how does the animal kingdom tie into this? If you look at the zebrafish that, that I mentioned earlier, if you cut out 20% of their heart, just snip it off, and this probably happens from you know, predators taking a nip out of these things, the entire heart grows back, perfectly functional, no problem. Now, what is it about the zebrafish heart that allows it to grow back when a human heart that has a blockage and dead cells because those cells weren't supplied with oxygen never grows back. That's, you know, those are the amazing types of stories that, that I got to tell, and, and, and they're still ongoing. And, but but this, is the, this is the medicine of the future is based on, the, on zoology that could be millions of years old. Well, and how much research is being done in trying to figure out how to get human hearts to mimic you know these these zebra hearts um oh yeah quite a bit versus versus say for example uh total heart replacement with uh something technical uh, a mechanical heart all of that's being done and and so so not only with mechanical hearts but but with hearts that you literally grow from a cadaver heart, and we can talk about that. But you know, but but to answer your question, um, there are there are there are researchers now who are trying to culture stem cells. So let's say you had a heart attack and you have this dead tissue on your heart, okay, because of this blockage. What they want to do is take a sample of your skin cells called fibroblasts, and and you can convert those into stem cells. This can be done. And then you can convert those stem cells into cardiac muscle cells. And now you grow them in culture and you take them and now you can literally knit them back onto the heart. So that's one venue of research 
you know, trying to get around the fact that 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 our that, that our hearts don't repair really well when they're damaged. But as I said, there are there are you know any number of different um, avenues that different researchers around the world are taking to deal with the, the, the with these problems. You know, not well, enough donor we've hearts. Heard, we've heard for decades about artificial hearts and, mm-hmm. and transplanting artificial hearts into humans. Um, but is there um, a collective school of thought as to whether or not technology is the answer versus something organic? Um, I think most of the research now deals with, uh, w- with the organic side. So, for example... There's a major, uh, a lot of people die waiting for transplants and, and, and organ transplants. But, and so we're looking at heart and kidney and liver and, 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 and lungs, okay? So, so there are researchers now who are taking the tact that, all right, well, the reasons why th- there's this, um, why so many people die is because you have to match those organs up. You've got to match up blood type. The tissues have to match between the, the, the donor heart, the donor organ, and the recipient. So what they're trying to do is they're taking a cadaver heart, okay? So this is the heart from somebody who's, who's died and donated their heart to, to, to science. And what they're doing is, is, is putting it, hooking this heart up, so they isolate it, and they hook it up to a detergent drip. So this detergent literally moves through the heart, and as it does, it dissolves away all of the cells that your body would reject if you were to take that heart and stick it in somebody. Right? So what's left is a connective tissue model. It looks ghostly white, but it looks just like a heart. And it's mostly made of collagen. Now, our body does not have a real strong immune reaction against collagen. So what they want to do is, if you back up and, 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 and remember what I talked to you about, about taking a, a sample of tissue from a, right. from a recipient this time, turning that into a stem cell, converting that stem cell this time into cardiac muscle tissue, and then embedding it, seeding it onto this model of the heart, and then installing it into the recipient. So now it's got the, the, the cells and the sort of biological makeup of that recipient. He's not going to reject it. That's where the places where this technology is going. Well, that's, that's amazing. Uh, again, um, my guest is uh, Bill Schutt. He is uh, the author of Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Bill, what are you hoping that readers get out of this book who are not zoologists and cardiologists? Oh, great question. Um, <laughs> certainly, the, the, that, um, one of the things I, that I've always tried to get across to my students and to my readers is that we have this tendency to think of the human condition, let's say it's the human heart or the human lungs or the human fill-in-the-blank, is the sort of pinnacle the evolutionary pinnacle, the best, the greatest, the most complex, the, and, and everything else is sort of like a uh, you know, failure or, or, or primitive or defective. That's just not the case. You know? So whether you're looking at, and I try to get that message across, so whether you're looking at the, the aortic arches of, uh, of an earthworm uh, or you're looking at the, the, the four-chambered heart of a human or a blue whale, they all do the, the job and they do it really, really well. And they have been evolving to do that job for millions and millions of years. So we shouldn't really look down on, 
uh, on other creatures and 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 other organ systems, um, and and think that we're somehow uh, spectacularly more successful because of that. Um, you know, in 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 some instances, the more complex an organ is, the more problems you can have with it, and that's we can see that with the heart very easily. And that's one of the sort of take-home messages messages that that I try to get across in this book. Bill, what's what's next for you? Hmm. Um, I'm I'm currently a bit more than halfway done working on a book about teeth, and um, and this has turned out to be just as interesting to me as the heart, uh, mainly, you know, for for all sorts of reasons. Early dentistry is crazy, uh, and uh, and. And, and scientists, up until really recently, a lot of what we know about the early life on this planet is, is known from, from fossilized teeth because those are the hardest objects and they're the ones that fossilize the most. Um, but there are so many cool stories that I'm, that, that I'm getting into now. Um, you know, tuskless elephants that are evolving in, in response to uh, hunting pressure that elephants have been under for, for hundreds of years now. So there's just so many cool stories to tell. George Washington's ventures, that sort of thing. Um, so, so, so that's what I'm working on now. I've got a, a solo um, work of fiction that, that, uh, that, that is also out there um, with, um, with my agent right now. Is, um, is, it takes place in World War II in Canada. Is George uh, Washington's wooden dentures a, a um, uh, urban legend? Oh yeah, they weren't made of wood. <laughs> no wood. No, they think the staining from the um, from from. I won't go into this because I don't want to give it away. But they think that the staining from the red wine that he liked made it look like his uh, his his dentures were made out of uh, of wood. You know, it sort of gave him a wood grain look, but uh, they were not made of wood. Oh, that's funny. Um, Bill, I appreciate you taking this time and, and spending time with me and the listeners this morning and uh, all the work, work that went into this book. The book is called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart by uh, zoologist and researcher Bill Shutt. And uh, Bill, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Sure. Um, my website is BillShutt.com, B-I-L-L-S-C-H-U-T-T.com. I also have a, a Twitter account, Bill Shutt Books, and, um, and Facebook page, Bill Shutt Author. Uh, and, but the, my, all of my books, uh, happily and, and luckily for me, can be, uh, in, you know, your, 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 your listeners can, can get them anywhere that, that, that they like them in, in any form. Um, any place that books are sold should be able to get a hold of my books. Well, Bill, it's been fun talking with you. Thanks so much. Uh, absolutely. Really nice to talk to you, too. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Again, that was uh, zoologist and uh, author Bill Schutt. He um, wrote uh, the New York Times Editor's Choice, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. And uh, now he's... Um, Taken on the Heart, and in his uh, newest book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. And uh, we're going to take a short break. If you're listening to us at uh, 
WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do. When we go to break, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have uh, some messages as well, so don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There is lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Don't forget, we're going to be talking about film noir coming up in the third hour. We're going to talk a lot about film noir for Halloween tomorrow when we tackle uh, two uh, well-known uh, Hollywood film directors uh, from the film noir era. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock and Otto Preminger. Hi, we'll be this right is back. Joe Bai from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development cooperation with other experts worldwide and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. 
W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whyscarver.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sutler Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me. I see bones. I see gizzards and bones and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones I see hips And fourteen paper clips Three asparagus tips Among the lovely bones I see things in your peritoneum That belong in the British I see your spine And your spine looks divine It's exactly like mine Now doesn't that seem strange? And in case You use pay telephones There's two dollars in change Among your lovely This x-ray. It's really remarkable. Isn't the lumbar vertebrae supposed to be connected to the clavicle? Well, I know, but it's got tape. Hey, look what's in there. Look at that. It's a stamp. It's a 1922 McKinley Ultramarine Blue. With imperfect perforations, I've got to get that out and put it in my collection. Look in there, there's 
printing. What does it say in there? U.S. certified grade A. Look at this. It's fascinating. See those little round things? You know what those are? Those are M&Ms. Those people are right. They don't melt. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Another five minute mystery. Our story takes place in Green's Gap, a small town in the Southern Cavern District. Green's Gap Hospital, Dr. Melville speaking. Doctor, doctor, there's been an accident out at Echo Cavern. Accident? What kind of accident? Two men were exploring and they got lost last night. One's unconscious. You better come quick before he's dead. I hope you know how to get out to Echo Cavern, Len. Well, with the job of being town constable and ambulance driver, I reckon I know all there is to know about these parts. Ever been in the cavern, then? Once, Doc Melville, when I was a boy. Nearly got my hide tanned off by my paw. Echo Cavern's a mite treacherous place. You mean it's easy to get lost in it? Not only that, Doc. It's that cavern gas carbine. Mm, something. You mean carbon dioxide? Yeah, that's it. All of a sudden, you run into some of that stuff, and before you know it, Bean, you're out. Still, people seem to be going uh, exploring in there. More fools to be. I wouldn't go into them caverns, at least till I was not without a dog. A dog? What for? Well, if a dog keels over, then you know the gas is collecting. I'm afraid, Mr. Gaddy, your friend is dead. Oh, poor Patsy. It wasn't from the gas, was it, Doc? That's what it looks like to me. Why'd you go into that cavern anyway? Patsy asked me to. We'd never seen a cave before. How far did you go in? Well, it didn't seem very far, but all of a sudden we lost our way. Where was that? Well, how do I know whereabouts it was if we was lost? We tried to trace our way back, but it was no use. Patsy started to get scared. It's kind of funny to see a big guy like that get scared. Yeah, he is rather big, isn't he? Yeah, six foot four. The mob used to call us Mutt and Jeff. And then what happened? Well, I was a little scared myself, but we stuck together. You know, walking in the dark with only my flash from the car. All of a sudden, Pat keeled over. From the gas? Yeah, that's what I figured. His head hit on a rock, and I guess that just about finished him off. I suppose you reckon yourself pretty lucky, mister. Yeah, sure. I figure it's because I'm only five foot three that I got out of there alive. Gas must have been just about a foot over my head. Yeah, and what do you think about that, Doc Melville? I think you better arrest Mr. Gotti for the murder of his friend Patsy. What was the flaw in Gaddy's story? Do you know it? In a moment, we'll hear from Lem and Dr. Melville. (laughs) 
And now, let's see whether you're as observant as Lem and the doctor. Hey, copper, let me put my hands down. They're tired. When you're in Green Gap's jail, not before. I don't get it. It was a good story. I still can't figure out how you found out. Lem tells me they used to take dogs in the cavern because the gas is heavier than air. It collects on the floor. If you really meant gas, you would have keeled over first, before your pal Patsy. Well, what do you know? I tell you, nowadays in this murder racket, you need a college education. Another five-minute mystery. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, Sean Cantwell, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. Stay tuned to the Tom Sumner Program for future mini-mysteries. between all of my sisters all over this land. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating Schlocktober with Tom Sumner. Radio. 
for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. You pilots get off my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.